thank you, Alex, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Um, can I also urge you to uh, get cracking on the church suite uh, registration? I know it sounds like a piece of useless bureaucracy, but it really is very strategically important as we move uh, the church into the digital age and all our processes go online. Uh, so it's also quite easy to use. Even I can uh, manage to register. <clears throat> so as Alex said, we're beginning a new teaching series uh, on the book of Second Samuel. And uh, I was given the unenviable task of surveying chapters 1 through 6, which of course is an impossible task. Uh, so we're going to focus on chapter 6, but I'm going to make some observations uh, by looking at two incidents in the first five chapters. So the story begins where 1 Samuel ends. King Saul has committed suicide, and uh, David gradually consolidates his authority over Judah and then the rest of Israel, and eventually over the surrounding nations. So the book has important lessons to teach us about the transition of leadership, the transition of power, and the exercise of power. It's one thing to become a king. It's quite another thing to reign as a king. So in this study, I want to make two points about the transition of power, and we'll look at two incidents from the first five chapters, and then we'll home in on chapter six, and I'll make two points about the exercise of power. Now, I'm conscious that the theme of governing might seem a bit remote or even academic, but it turns out that it is intensely practical with all sorts of lessons for how we run our families and how we run our churches. So let's get underway by thinking about those moments when power transitions from one regime to another. It so happens that tomorrow uh, we will see that process happen before our eyes. One prime minister will leave Downing Street and a new one will enter it. Twitter feeds and broadsheet articles are packed with speculation about which cabinet members uh, are in and which are out. It's a regime change, a transition of power. The story is told of a new chief executive who was hired to take over a struggling company. The outgoing CEO, who was stepping down, uh, met with him privately and presented him with three numbered envelopes. Open these if you run into serious trouble, he said. Well, three months later, sales and profits were still way down, and the new CEO was catching a lot of heat. He began to panic, but then he remembered the envelopes. He went to his drawer and took out the first envelope, and the message read, blame your predecessor. The new chief executive called a press conference, explained that the previous incompetent had left him with a real mess, and it was taking a bit longer to clean it up than expected. But everything was on the right track. Satisfied with his comments, the press responded positively. Another quarter went by, and the company continued to struggle. Having learned from his previous experience, the CEO quickly opened the second envelope. The message read, reorganize. So he fired key people, consolidated divisions, cut costs. Wall Street and the press applauded his efforts. Another three months passed. The company was still short on sales and profits. The CEO was going to have to figure out how to get through another tough earnings call. He went to his office, closed the door, and opened the third envelope. The message said, prepare three envelopes. <clears throat> Anyone who has worked for a large organization knows there's a lot of truth in that story, particularly the bit about the first envelope. Blame your predecessor. It is the oldest trick in the book. And it must have been such a temptation for David. The kingdom was hopelessly divided. Saul had been so consumed with jealousy and bitterness toward David that he had neglected his responsibilities as king. 
It was entirely normal in those brutal days of the ancient Near East for the new regime to wipe out the extended families of the old regime. Uh, so in these early chapters of 2 Samuel, we see David time and time again do the opposite, make these countercultural decisions. I mean, just think of how he treats Mephibosheth. David shows enormous respect for the old regime. So we're just going to watch him now as he reacts to the news of Saul's death. So we're turning your Bible, please, to 2 Samuel and chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll read 17 through 19. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Drop down to verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. The interesting thing about this incident is that David writes a song, a lament, and he orders that everyone in Judah had to learn that song. So he is deliberately neutralizing the acid of revenge, of getting payback. He records the good and positive things that emerged from Saul's reign, and he builds these corporate memories into the nation's story, into its cultural narrative, if you like. His strategy is the very opposite of that first white envelope, which said, blame your predecessor. David's example here has a direct lesson for leadership in church life. It is a cheap trick for a Christian leader to blame everything on a previous generation of leaders. Every church has genetic defects. There are characteristics we have inherited that aren't always good. But leaders should be careful to pay tribute to the good and positive things uh, that emerge from the past. In our own tradition, it's not too difficult to point out problems caused by mistakes of the past. Too many assemblies lost their way, locked into legalism, drained of life and innovation by ossified leadership structures. But learn the lesson of David's song of the bow. We should feel enormous gratitude to the men and women who built a culture based on the priesthood of all believers, plurality of leadership, a foundational commitment to Scripture, and an approach to worship that is authentic to the New Testament pattern. So the first point we learn about the transition of leadership is that it is wise to celebrate what was good about the past. For our second point, let's now turn to the end of the transition period, and we'll read from chapter 5. So 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we'll start uh, at verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. Verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here even if the blind and the lame can ward you off. 
They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. A really deep fault line existed in Israel. It ran between the tribes of Judah and Simeon in the south and the rest of the tribes in the north of the country. And David manages to overcome the tensions between north and south during his reign. He forges Israel into a real powerhouse uh, in the Near East. As I said at the start, he began life as an outlaw, but he ends it as an emperor. We might reasonably have expected Israel to develop into a big political player in the ancient Near East, like Assyria or Babylon. But just a few short years after David's death, that big fault line in Israel opens up again and the kingdom divides. His existence makes David's establishment of a unified kingdom all the more impressive. Now, I hope that context helps to make sense of the verses we've just read. David's capture of the Jebusite city of, called Jerusalem was an act of political genius. He had already established himself in Hebron. Hebron was effectively the capital of Judah. A lesser man would have insisted that Hebron became the capital of the entire nation. But on the other hand, if he had selected one of the northern cities, his own followers would have been upset. So he chooses a neutral venue, a Jebusite city called uh, Jerusalem that Israel had not yet captured. And by making a brand new city, he really forged this identity of a new kingdom, unified kingdom. He was showing in prototype form what Christ would do with his church. The church is pictured in the book of Revelation as the new Jerusalem. And when Paul talks about how Christ builds his church, he says in Ephesians, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier or the dividing wall of hostility. And he concludes, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now, at the practical level of daily life, it's not uncommon for deep fault lines to exist in church fellowships. Differences in church backgrounds or theological positions or ministry interests, these things can all lead to unspoken tribalism within a fellowship. So a transition in leadership can send shockwaves through a church. And I suggest that David's genius action here has a very helpful insight for leaders. Choose a unifying project for the future. When setting direction for the church, use sanctified imagination to create a project that will command the allegiance, the allegiance of the entire church. And by doing that, all the unspoken fears of a takeover or a loss of ownership will dissipate. So, we have thought about a couple of practical lessons from these early chapters about the transition of leadership. Celebrate what was good about the past, choose a unifying project for the future. But for the remainder of our time, I want to focus in on chapter six of the book. As I said at the start, becoming a king is one thing, but reigning as a king is another thing. As we'll see in the later studies, the whole question of how we govern for God lies at the heart of this book. So we'll consider two lessons from chapter six not about the transition of power, but about the exercise of power. So let's read together now the entire chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. 
They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, David, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched him from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all of the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. <clears throat> At first sight, the death of Uzzah seems outrageous. Surely the man was just trying to avoid an accident. I've known more than one critic of Christianity use this incident to accuse God of being some sort of petulant Zeus. But the answer is in the text. First, you'll notice that the ark was being transported upon a cart. Now, that is exactly the mode of transport which the Philistines had used to move the ark way back at the start of 1 Samuel. And they did that because they just thought it was like one of their own idols. You see, Moses had given specific instructions that the ark had to be carried with great solemnity by a phalanx of Levites. But that instruction had been ignored. 
But much more importantly, look at how the author describes the ark in verse 2. The ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The author is warning us, reminding us that the ark represented God's throne. His very presence dwelled between the two cherubim that covered the top of the ark. Now, consider Yuza's action in that light. <laughs> David Gooding once asked his audience to imagine a day when they were in heaven. And one day you see the very throne of God is about to keel over. Whatever you do, he said, don't try to keep it upright by holding it up yourself. Reality itself would implode if God's throne crumbled and fell. You see, the old Philistines, they had had to lift up their idol called Dagon when it fell onto the floor. But later on, Isaiah would identify this characteristic of idols. They had to be carried. He talks about two Babylonian gods, one called Bel, the other called Nebo. And the poor oxen are stumbling. They're dragging these great heavy idols on carts, and they're exhausted by the strain of keeping the idols upright and moving. And then in a brilliant reversal, we hear God say, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. So my first point about godly leadership is this. Never try to hold God up. We don't have to carry God. He carries us. He takes the strain. He takes the weight of responsibility for the final outcome of life's events. Some years ago, I was contacted by a woman whose son, he was a student at Queen's, and he had just told her that he no longer considered himself to be a Christian. She was beside herself with anxiety desperately searching for some resource or some expert who could get her son back on track. Those of you who are parents must know that sense of anxiety. But let me say in all gentleness, be careful that you aren't trying to carry God to keep the whole enterprise of salvation on track yourself. Faith is not faith in an outcome. Faith is faith in a person. So allow the Lord to carry you through this trial. It is he who will pour the resources of patience and wisdom and love into your heart because at the end of the day, the outcome is in his hands, not yours. The same point applies to church leaders. Every church that has ever existed is about three problems away from closure. If elders were responsible for outcomes, we would be crushed by an impossible weight. So there is enormous wisdom when an elder whispers to himself, this is not my church. It is the Lord's church. My job is just to be faithful. The outcome isn't down to me. I hesitate before saying this because I don't want to be misunderstood. But it is only logical to repeat the point I've been making in its negative form. If I am feeling crushed by an overwhelming anxiety about something I feel responsible for, it may possibly be that I am trying to hold up an idol. Now, please do not think I'm pinning all anxiety on idolatry. That would be a stupid and cruel thing to say. But in certain situations, we can fall into the trap of trying to hold God up, as it were, 
And in that moment, we're treating him like an idol. So find rest in the thought that God is the God who carries you. Three months after Uzzah's death, David finally moves the ark into Jerusalem. And he gets everything right this time. The ark is carried into the city by the Levites. And to the ordinary people, it must have felt as if the Lord himself had come to visit their city. And the scene that follows is sometimes used in debates about Christian worship. You know, David danced, so why shouldn't we dance when worshiping? Well, there's a mental image we could all do without. But anyway, I would humbly suggest that an argument like that completely misses the point of the story. The author's focus is on the contrast between the ordinary citizens like the serving girls and Michal, who was David's first wife. Michal was an aristocratic snob. She was interested in worldly power and had no awareness of unseen spiritual realities. So you see, Michal would have loved her husband to have entered the city like some Roman emperor at the head of a triumphant procession, perhaps riding on a white horse surrounded by cavalry and chariots and so on. But then she sees David dancing happily along with the ordinary common folk. Had he no sense of dignity? No decorum? She despised him in her heart. She wanted David to elevate himself above the people, to create a gulf between the king and his minions. But David had removed his royal regalia and was down, as it were, on the shop floor, mixing it up with the riffraff. And I suggest that's the way to understand what's going on here. David's view of reality was so different from Michal's view. He knew that the gulf between the king and the citizen was nothing, nothing, a mere hair's breadth in comparison to the gulf between him and the Lord. And he joyfully placed himself under the power and authority of God. My first point about godly leadership was we don't ever try to hold God up. My second is to the leader, place yourself under God's authority. And we can apply this in the home and in church. If you want your children to obey the Scriptures, then they have to see you obey the Scriptures. If you want your children to make costly sacrifices, to show courage in evangelism, then they must first see you make costly sacrifices and show courage in evangelism. No one gets to be above the law of God. The best thing a parent can do is model obedience to scriptural authority, never to play the, well, I'm a grown-up and I play by different rules card. My father is home in heaven. Well, the older folks here will remember that he was a truly talented singer. In his young days, he won just about every vocal competition in Ireland. He broadcast on the BBC. He sang opera and oratorio. And it was his life. As a child, I had as much interest in singing as I had in the literature of Mongolia. But I could discern that music somehow lit up my dad's soul. But it was in danger of taking over his life. He was spending a lot of time away from home and family and church. And so with a sense of profound regret, he gave up his professional life. Instead of Covent Garden, he sang hymns in little gospel halls. I don't think he was even aware just how deeply that impacted his children. But we learned what it, what it meant to sacrifice, what it meant to believe, really believe in the values of the eternal kingdom. And so even during my years as a truculent, mixed-up adolescent sitting over there, I always had to concede that my father had a moral authority that came from, my own, from his own obedience. That same lesson should be learned by elders. An elder has no authority of himself. 
Zero. The office he bears has authority conferred on it, but he sits under the same authority as everyone else. So the lesson in both home and church is for a leader to place themselves under God's authority. Now, before we leave this point, we have to address the complex marital relationship between David and Michal. Michal was David's first love. She had genuinely fallen in love with him. She did. But as the years went by, her worldliness and his spirituality caused her love for her husband to die. It was replaced by a cold contempt for his values. In verse 16, we are told that Michal despised her husband in her heart. I find it interesting that in the New Testament, men are often told to love their wives. But it is common for wives to be told to respect their husbands. And that's because there is nothing more corrosive to a marriage than a wife who does not respect her husband. It corrodes a man's self-understanding even more than if he feels unloved for a time. So a marriage is in terrible trouble if a woman deep down in her heart despises her husband. It's actually quite hilarious that when the Apostle Peter is talking about these things, he uses Sarah and Abraham as his example. Sarah was a fierce, intelligent woman. She was the very opposite of some downtrodden housewife. And Abraham sometimes didn't treat her very well. So she might have had good reason to despise him at times. But as an act of the will, she always treated him with respect, or at least treated his role within the marriage with respect. And in so doing, over time, she produced a husband who in the end was worthy of respect. But Michal could not bring herself to respect David. Deep down, she despised his unselfconscious spirituality. And so, as the text explains, physical intimacy broke down and the marriage became a barren and cold thing. It's a sad ending, isn't it? Scripture is quite clear that as a girl, she had fallen deeply in love with David. So I guess there's a vital lesson for the young adults in the room who are looking for a life partner. I'm keeping my eyes down at this point in case I, I catch somebody's eye. Um, falling in love isn't enough for a durable marriage. If you don't have shared values, then in the end, there can be no mutual respect. Anyway, we're done for today. The first five chapters set out the transition of leadership from the house of Saul to the house of David. And we picked out two lessons about leadership transitions. It's wise to celebrate what was good about the past. Don't blame your predecessors. Remember David's lament, the song of the bow, and build the good things of the past into your cultural memory. But second, choose a unifying project for the future. When setting direction for a church, create a project that will command the allegiance of the entire church. And then from chapter 6, we learn two lessons about the exercise of power. First, don't fall into the trap of holding God up. Never treat him like an idol. Find rest in the thought that he is the God who carries you. And secondly, every leader should place themselves under the power and authority of God. The gulf between the leader and the led is minuscule in comparison to the gulf between the leader and the Lord. I'll hand back to Alex. Alex.